You're listening to the Scaling Culture Podcast, where we sit down with thought leaders who share their experiences building incredible workplace cultures. Our guest today is Lars Schmidt, who is the founder of the Redefining HR Accelerator and Amplify, an HR executive search and consulting firm. Lars has spent over 20 years in the industry, building a range of leading global companies. He's a writer for Fast Company, author of the best-selling book, Redefining HR, co-author of Employer Branding for Dummies, and host of the Redefining HR podcast. In this episode, Ron and Lars discuss what modern HR looks like and how it operates, how to make change from command and control to decentralized empowering structures, and how to drive accountability and reporting in those structures. Welcome to another episode of the Scaling Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Lovett, and today I'm extremely excited to have Lars Schmidt with us. Lars, how you doing? Yeah, Ron, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank. Look, thanks for doing this, especially so last minute. You know, I, I I'm kind of like a dog with a bone sometimes. If I see uh, someone who I find really interesting and providing great content and doing cool things, I'm like, I need to talk to this person. So I had you on my list, and I was like, I need to connect with Lars. So I'm really excited, um, really excited to have you today. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, and uh, I'm glad my work elicited that response. So uh, yeah. let, let, let's hope I don't let you down. You should be proud. That's right. That's right. A lot of pressure, Lars. Yeah, a lot of pressure. Right. So, so, um, Lars, just uh, we've already done an intro for you, but give me a snapshot. Like, who are you? Where do you come from? And and why this focus on HR? What, what you know? What's driving you to 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 be in this space? Yeah, I mean, I'm a I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm an entrepreneur, a podcaster, author. Uh, I've, I've got a lot of slashes. It's kind of embarrassing to go over the the full bio, so I'll, I'll keep it light. Um, in terms of what drew me to HR, I mean, my background, I kind of came up more through the recruiting and talent side. So I ran global recruiting teams at uh, Ticketmaster and Magento, and uh, most recently NPR. Then I started uh, my firm Amplify, which was uh, kind of launched as a consulting firm, mostly doing employer brand strategy and recruiting optimization. And then that kind of transitioned into co-founding a not-for-profit called HR Open Source, uh, which is really a global platform that I founded with uh, Ambrosia Bertesi, who is the uh, CHRO of Hootsuite in uh, Vancouver at the time. And uh, we kind of, we, we wanted to build something that was an, an open platform that kind of moved HR out of their, you know, black box uh, siloed past and, and got people collaborating and sharing and talking and, uh, you know, grew that to a community of over 10,000 practitioners in over hundred countries. And I think that shift and that, you know, just seeing the potential for open practices, collaboration, and kind of shining a spotlight on innovative HR uh, as a beacon to help move the entire industry forward. Uh, that just became something that I, I got very passionate about. And so, you know, whether it was the editorial projects, uh, writing for Fast Company, speaking at conferences, all of it was kind of oriented around like, how do we, how do we accelerate this shift that's taking place from kind of legacy HR to modern HR? But, but, but go back to that. What was the moment that you said, this is wrong and we, we need to do something about it? Was there, was there a one single moment? Did you have a bad experience? Was what happened to say, geez, this, this, this old school in the box thing's not working. We need to change it. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't call it a single moment, but I had, uh, back when I was a ticket master, I was running, uh, recruiting and then was kind of being groomed to be the successor to the CHRO there. Uh, and our CHRO came from Southwest airlines, um, Beverly Carmichael. And so I kind of learned HR, under her. And that was really, you know, I had the benefit of, I've always worked in organizations that valued HR. I've always worked in teams that were impactful. 
Um, you know, this whole like legacy stigma of, oh, HR is this, HR, I've never worked in those environments. And the people that I spend time with have never worked in those environments. And so I think a lot of it was saying, okay, let's kind of reclaim the function, right? We, we you know, the, the legacy brush that we're often painted with doesn't apply to many people working in the space right now. And so that's kind of, that ties back to the, the origin of redefining HR. It was really saying, hey, let's think differently about, you know, we operate differently. Our impact is differently. The way that we're, uh, you know, uh, adding value to the organization is different. So let's, you know, we're, we're not, we're not legacy HR. Let's not, you know, allow ourselves to be painted in that corner. Let's be the transformative kind of change agent so we can be. And so, uh, yeah, I think it wasn't a single moment, but it was really the time I spent working for her. Um, she became a friend and is still a mentor. Uh, of mine. I think that just, you know, that kind of showed me what HR could be at our best. And and I wanted to, you know, spend more time in that space. I love it. it well, we share that where, uh, and what I mean by that is, uh, so Sherry Conway from Southwest has been a mentor and now friend of mine and, and yeah. is actually writing the forward for the next book. And so Southwest, I think has inspired so many. If you think about this domino effect that, that, <clears throat> that organization has had on organizations, people, uh, it's incredible, right? I mean, it, it just seems to keep giving, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's great. I mean, when you when you look at when you have leaders like that, um, their impact on the industry is so outsized because they instill their kind of perspective and vision and ideas and ideals and values into their team, and their team carries that forward. So it's a uh, it's incredible to see examples like that where you just have mm. a transformative leader that has actually created so many leaders from their own style who then carry that vision forward. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, my first experience was actually reading nuts. Um, yeah. did you, did, have you read that book? And if so, did you read it before you met her? Uh, you know, I haven't. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I, I did not read it before her. Okay. Uh, yeah, but I, you know, I was familiar with them. It was actually, we joke about this now, but I, uh, I was running recruiting. I was running global recruiting when we hired her. So of course I had to interview her. It was the first time, you know, interviewing my future potential wow. boss. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was, <laughs> it was awkward. She, I was nervous. She, uh, I actually, I did one of my podcasts with her where it was basically like kind of a look back and talking about, you know, our relationship and mentoring. And, um, you know, I'd kind of mentioned, I, I was so nervous and she was like, you know, my recollection of that conversation is like, you grilled me. Like I was actually, I was a little taken aback at how much you grilled me. And I was just like, I don't remember that at all. So yeah, wow. it was uh, it was a trip. It's all about perspective, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. You, 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 she thinks you're getting, she thinks she's getting grilled. Your hands are soaking wet. Your armpits are sweating. You're nervous, fumbling and fumbling, right? <laughs> yeah. You, you, we can look back on that laugh now, but uh, yeah, it was, that was funny. That's great. So, so then redefining HR, the podcast and the book, which, which just launched what 60 days, 90 days ago. It was pretty Yeah. January. I came out yeah. in January. Yep. Well, congratulations. And Thank so, you. So what was the premise to get the book out there? You know, what was the idea behind the book? Yeah. I mean, so I've been, uh, I've been covering the topics in the book for years. I mean, I've had a column columns in fast company and Forbes. Um, I've had a podcast, obviously I had written a previous book on employer branding. So the, the whole kind of broad brush space of modern HR is an area that I've been covering for probably seven years now. And I think I've developed a lot of, um, individual content in those different editorial channels, whether it's podcasts, blog posts, articles, et cetera. Um, but as I, as those began to accumulate, uh, I began having a stronger desire to write a, a more cohesive story. 
right? Something that kind of tied it all together and said, okay, like this is what HR can be at our best. This is what modern HR looks like. Um, and that was really the driver in, in writing the book was, was wanting to kind of take all of the ideas, the conversations, I mean, hundreds of interviews that I'd had and tie them all together in a, in a cohesive narrative that painted a broad picture of what modern HR looks like and, uh, and how it operates. So, so can you paint that picture? What does, from your perspective, modern HR look like? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, how much time do we have? It's, uh, yeah. it, it's, it's a book <laughs> worth of an answer. I'll try to distill it down. I mean, I kind of distilled it into 10 main uh, components in terms of shifts from legacy to modern. And I'll just hit a couple of them sure. you know, for you that I think will illustrate. You know, one is kind of shifting from command and control structures to decentralizing and empowering structures. And what I mean by that is, you know, legacy HR, um, you know, there, there was this insecurity to the function. I think because of the stigmas and all the things we talked about, personnel, you know, administrative, transactional, reactive, you know, those were terms a lot of people painted uh, HR with. And so in an effort to be, uh, you know, to, to get that seat at the table, which is, you know, something we love talking about, we engineered all these systems and processes that made everything flow through us. You know, and we, we felt that being the kind of approval gatekeeper would, would be our pathway to power, but it backfired. It caused resentment and frustration and, and uh, you know, cost us credibility. And so modern operators, they're not insecure about the value they bring to the business. Uh, they, they're viewed from the C-suite down as, you know, value add partners, business operators focused on people. Uh, and so that's a big shift. And I think another one that kind of ties to that would be moving from, uh, you know, the way that we, we came from kind of a, a compliance, uh, you know, orientation in terms of where, where, you know, the origins of HR. And so uh, I, th I think too often we design policies and procedures around, you know, what's the worst thing that somebody could do? Cool. Let's assume everybody's going to do that and let's build policies that safeguard the company against that behavior. Uh, and so it was policy, uh, you know, against the few. And the shift is moving to policy for the many. It's like, let's assume that we're hiring adults. Let's assume people are going to make good decisions. Let's build policies that allow managers and to manage and leaders to lead. Um, and if somebody, you know, demonstrates bad behavior, address that individually. But let's not assume that every employee is going to do that and, and guard against that. And so I think those are just two mindset shifts. Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, really, it's, it's the, the role of an HR leader is being a business leader that's focused on people. Like the, the, the role of a CHRO or a CPO is, uh, to me, next to the CEO, the most difficult job in the C-suite, just because of the sheer complexity of it and the volatility of what you're overseeing, which is your employee population, which, you know, again, they're all, they all have different dynamics and drivers and needs, especially coming out of 2020. So, um, yeah, it, it's just a, it, it, it's a very different function. I think when you right. look at those best in class teams than the legacy teams. So, so I love that. I think you're, you're touching on two really critical things that are from old to new and, you know, as we talked about previously, I certainly had my own journey, you know, in my my previous uh, company being in private security. And I, I, I was curious, what what do you suggest for those who are still in this command and control? What's the first step? How do you move to decentralized? What What is the best practice in that? Yeah, I mean, for one, I think you have to look at, well, I should back up from that. Before you get into kind of tactical actions that a CHO or HR leader can take, um, you have to first assess, is the environment ready for that? Because you could have the most uh, innovative and creative CHRO on the planet, but if they're working for a CEO and an executive team that doesn't get it, that doesn't view HR as that value-add function, 
um, they're going to be capped. There's a limit to the impact they can have. And so kind of fully you know, leading that transformation probably isn't going to happen in that kind of environment. So we have to so, own that. So let's, let's go there for a sec, yeah. Lars. So, so let's just say, you know, I joined this company and I'm like, it's time to move. You know, I come from Google now I'm working for this uh, old school, I don't know, car manufacturer. Yeah. Pulling that out of thin air. Um, but it's not ready. What are the steps to get it ready now? What is this just a mindset shift? Is it educating the C-suite? What are some of the things that you've seen to say, okay, if you're not ready, then what? Yeah, I think a lot of it is educating the C-suite first because they have to buy in. Without their support and buy-in, you're not going to be able to make the kind of impact. You're not going to be able to kind of build the kind of people programs um, that I highlight in the book. So it's educating the leadership. It's helping them understand the value of progressive people operations and people teams um, the impact that can have on the bottom line. So you can connect that to, you know, revenue, productivity, whatever metrics that your CEO or, you know, CFO or anybody on the C-suite is more compelled by. Uh, so, you know, make that business case to them, bring lots of data. There's lots of case studies out there. There's lots of, you know, white papers and research and reports that demonstrate the value of, you know, high-performing people teams on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So start there with that education, you know, process. Um, if they don't get it, maybe find another job to be yeah, honest yeah, with yeah. you. And I don't, and I don't mean that to be, you know, glib, but I think that there are, there are some old school leaders who yeah. just, um, they can't get it and, 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 mm. and they won't get it. And they just, they, they come from a different era and I'm not, you know, that, that isn't an age comment. It's just they, their mindset is tied to a different area when they just, they view, you know, Oh, people should want to have a job. You should want to work for me. You should be, you know, lucky to have this job, right? If you have a leader like that, I don't know that they're going to change. And so I think you can present the kind of data to them and to try to, you know, move them along in the journey. Um, but ultimately not all of them will be able to make that shift. And if you find that you're in that environment and you're that modern type of HR leader, you probably need to go somewhere else. It's interesting because there, you know, from my experience, there's two things uh, that I think are relevant here. One is there, yeah, there's the date. Now I was the leader, so I was making the shift myself and I, I yeah. actually had to go the other way. I had to convince folks what was in it for them. I had made the decisions on bottom line and, and whatnot, <clears throat> but the, the, the biggest impact to everybody else in the organization was they got their time back. You know, like yeah. once we had empowered folks to make decisions, it was the time, you know, and, you know, I always tell stories about my office was a revolving door you know, people always came to me to answer questions. And, you know, I think that strokes ego quite well in the early stages. Then you figure out, wow, like I am the bottleneck here. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm actually slowing others growth down and I'm not allowing them to learn. And I am the bottleneck of information, you know, um, and decisions. And so, but, but in my case, interesting enough, again, because I was the sole shareholder and founder, my challenge in the private security industry was convincing the customer that this was the right decision. This freaked our customer out to say, what do you mean? You know, we're not going to call Sarah or Johnny in the office anymore. No, 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 no. You're going to deal directly with the leader that works at your site. And I had to really build trust and systemize that a little bit and really paint a picture for our customer to say, when you call Sarah and John at the office, you know, with your challenge, they put you very low on the to-do list. We're going to move to a model here where you can talk to the site leader that works with you on a daily basis. You can, you know, tell them your challenge and they can make a decision in real time. They don't need approval. They can make a decision. And that took some time because the industry wasn't ready for that. Right. 
you see a lot of that, that, that even the customers are not, in most cases, it's behind the scenes. Customer doesn't really know the difference. Or what are you seeing? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, in HR, it's a little different because, you know, HR, the, the work of most HR is internal to the business and the organization. So, you know, you may have, um, what I do see in some cases, especially for people that have made that shift to decentralize and empower, uh, and they're empowering their HR manager or not their HR, their line managers and leaders to make those decisions. Um, you know, if they haven't worked in that environment, that can be that that can be an adjustment for them. Yeah, you have to arm them to be able to have those conversations. Meaning, you know, there's a, a you know an incident happens between an employee and a manager, uh, and and you know the manager's instinct may be, well, I'm going to go to HR on this. You know, in the environment I'm talking about, HR is going to push back and be like, no, you're the manager, you deal with this. Like, Figure he, it he, out. yeah, these are like, okay, here are the here's the guidelines, so it's not like you're completely on your own. Here's some general guidelines and some constructs, but like you don't bring every single thing that occurs to HR. You're the manager, you're the leader, you need to be able to manage through that. And so for some managers, that is a shift because they're, they're used to having very kind of regimented programs where, you know, everything gets, you know, uh, uh, an, an incident happens and it gets escalated to a, a manager, a business partner, whoever. Um, and then those companies that are practicing kind of that more decentralized model that's for them to figure out. And mm. so, um, you know, HR has to support them with the tools and manager training so that they were not just saying, figure that out. And, you know, you're on your own. So you, you have to kind of shift towards making sure that your, your managers are trained on how to, how to deal with those scenarios. Uh, but they're then expected to deal with them. Well, it's interesting when you say train and tools, because I, I mean, our biggest challenge back to, to this business was the tools and training, right? Because, you know, I talk a lot about this where, where, you know, uh, owners and entrepreneurs are saying, would you just, just think like Lars, just, just make a decision like I would as the owner, but you would think very differently than me. Yeah. You'd probably make a very different decision. So the tool we put in place, the process, cause we actually scrapped policies and procedures. I was, you know, I was really trying to move away from command and control. So we put in a decision-making process. We basically told everybody from a full-time part-time security guard to, to the CFO, if you're going to make a decision on something you don't regularly make a decision on, ask yourself three questions. Is it the right thing for the customer? Yes or no. Is it the right thing for our business based on our values and purpose? And are you willing to be accountable? That system allowed us to, allowed, you know, I, the subtitle of my book is um, giving employees their brains back. Not that they didn't have employees, but it was giving them the, you know, tapping into untapped potential, yeah. allowing them to you know, set them free to, and give them guidelines for decisions. Are, what other tools are you seeing simple tools out there that are allowing user have, have you heard of something like that or other tools that are allowing folks to systemize decentralization decision making yeah i mean i think frameworks like the one that you mentioned uh i do see companies doing that where so there's like a a, a basic kind of approach like you kind of check these three things four things whatever it might be and if that if those align you move forward um, yeah, we'll support I, you. We'll support yeah, you in the decision. Exactly. Like we, we, we have your back essentially. So they, yeah. they know that they're empowered because I think, especially when you add that accountability piece in there, you know, that if you're not framing that the right way, that can become a bottleneck because if somebody is like, I don't really know, like I, I'm, I'm sure it's the right for the thing for the customer because they're asking me to do it. I think it's the right thing for the business because it's not incongruent with our values or bottom line or any of those things. Um, I'm still not certain it's the right decision. And with me being accountable now, so I think you have to kind of frame that in a way that kind of contextualizes what that means and does it from a place of support. 
you know, meaning like, like we're not, you know, we're, we're not looking to peg this on somebody if, if the decision ends up being wrong. Like you're going to make the best decision you can with the information you have at the time. And, uh, and, and we trust that, that, that will, that will go well. And sometimes it won't. And when it won't, when it doesn't, we still have your back. And so I think the, from a learning perspective, more specifically, you are starting to see more platforms coming out with, um, you know, kind of micro learning, just in time learning type tools to make it easier for, you know, if somebody's in a scenario they haven't seen before, they can go into like a system and quickly do a search and pull up like, okay, this is, this is, this is how we approach X, you know, or this is, um, um, this is the decision framework to help me sort through why. So yes. just, you know, making sure that employees are armed with those tools. So they, they have that support and ultimately they feel more confident uh, in their ability to make the right decisions. Yeah, I, I, I would agree, uh, you know, whether it's to an LMS that they say, how do you, f- you know, deal with this certain issue or, you know, the strategy we also take is, is uh, connectivity to their peers, having their peers answer these real time yeah. questions, which also builds relationships. You know, we do this on our new business on, on workplace, you know, not only can, can employees say, Hey, I've got this challenge. I don't know how to solve it. Boom. Everybody jumps in. They love it. They have a yeah. different sense of purpose. And then we, we, you know, monthly, we get them together and have deeper dives into not just these quick boom, I need help, but deeper dives into here's a challenge I have. Okay. Who solved this problem before? And, and that seems to be a nice layer, a nice balance of, of content systems provided by us and human um, experience contacts. Yeah. I mean, look, when you can leverage the, the collective intellect of your team and kind of create systems where they can all like, yeah, there's a, there's a camaraderie standpoint. There's yeah. a, there's a culture, uh, you know, value add to that. Um, but also the reality is you, you probably have peers who've done and seen that exact same thing. Mm-hmm. So if you have a way to harness that perspective, you know, or even search past conversations, right. So you're not asking the same questions over and over again. Uh, that's hugely powerful. And so I think that's why you see a lot of companies having those, those networks, uh, whether they're using Slack or different tools uh, where people can kind of connect with their peers uh, as well to get some of those answers that they might not have in their head. Absolutely. Um, and, and so from my experience, the two challenges going to decentralization, because, you know, as I always talk about in the book, I certainly had a blindfold on when I was doing this and it was trial and error and I fell down a bunch of times. So I'm curious um, from your standpoint, how have companies got it right or, 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 uh, or, or helped with when, when they go from command control to decentralize, how are they driving accountability? Because that's people's worry is how do you still hold this organization accountable? Because it was easy on command and control. It's a little more difficult decentralized. What strategies are you seeing, Lars, that, that folks are doing? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think we're, we're seeing that conversation play out right now in the shift to remote. Uh, right for companies yes. and beyond COVID, you know, everybody who had employees that could work from home shifted to remote seemingly overnight. Um, and you had a lot of managers who were kind of like, well, if I don't see this person, how do I know that they're not working? And, you know, I think the general response for people who have been doing this for a while is like, how'd you know they were working when you did see them? Like, just because you can physically see them at a desk doesn't mean that they're being productive. Like I think HR in general needs to do a better job in this new post COVID Reality, obviously, we're not post-COVID yet, but as we're moving through it, of measuring impact and measuring results, not hours. So it's not about you know how long your butt is in a seat. It's not about where you're working. It's not about the hours of your work or the location of your work. It's about the output of your work. And you know, to be honest, I think as a field, we haven't done a great job of being able to to measure that. And that's going to be one of the big challenges and opportunities for the field 
you know, moving into kind of whatever comes after COVID and this kind of new reality of work that we're in um, is being able to change, you know, being able to build systems, but also change mindsets from some of those, you know, people that, again, they, they equated seeing somebody to, you know, assuming that they were getting work done. And, and that, you know, the idea that you, but just by seeing somebody, you knew that they were productive is kind of outlandish, but so many people thought that that's, that was their measure of productivity. So I think that that's the big opportunity for HR. We've got to be much better about, you know, measuring outputs, but then also changing mindsets in managers around like looking at the output of work, uh, not the, not, not the, the various inputs, because the inputs don't really matter as much if the output is there. Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting. So, you know, we certainly, uh, and, and we were really lucky, Lars, COVID didn't change how we operate. We, we have an office uh, here. We have folks that work from different places. And sometimes people go to the office. We don't set office hours. So we didn't miss a beat. We were really, really fortunate. <clears throat> and we kind of solved that problem in-house with, with two things. One, a cadence. You know, our yeah. biggest meeting is um, our most important, most valuable thing that we do is a daily huddle. At, at uh, 152 every day pain point challenges, uh, what do people have just to connect people, understand what are the challenges, what, 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 what keeps popping up that needs to be driven to a, you know, a different meeting, different conversation. Uh, and then we've kind of moved to, you know, I, I don't know if you ever read the book 4DX, which I liked, Four Disciplines of Execution. It was about scorecarding. I liked it, but there was a, there was a gap in that too, because, you know, the leading indicator versus lagging for like a salesperson, no problem. Okay. I have to make four phone calls, five meetings, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but where where the gap is, if you have a project, if I have to rebuild onboarding, then you don't know what you don't know. And so what we've kind of done, which which has been incredibly helpful, is if we leave a strategy meeting and someone you're, like yourself has to rebuild onboarding, so we start and say, Lars, that's your project, and it's at 0% completion today. Every week, let's check in. What's the one thing you're going to do to move that from 0 to 5%, 5 to 10? That's helped. Uh, but we've we've struggled a little bit with frontline leaders on that perspective in one of our businesses, you know, have you heard anything else, you know, and I think that it is a challenge, any other strategies that you're saying, simple strategies to, you know, especially for larger companies, right? For me, I'm, I'm still small, we're, we're scaling. Um, but what are you seeing large companies do to implement accountability when it is far away from them? Yeah. I mean, I spend a lot of my time in, in tech, um, that's the kind of sector that I, I, the domain that I spend most time. And I think what you often see there are companies that use, uh, OKRs, um, or mm-hmm. objectives and key results, uh, as a way to measure, um, you know, performance, but more around output. And it's typically done on a quarterly basis. It's cascading. So it kind of connects back to organizational goals. So at a department or an individual level, you can actually see how your work is impacting the broader company goals. Um, but you have, you know, a handful of them each quarter and you kind of look at it on a quarter by quarter basis and you recalibrate it because I think, you know, often in, in kind of legacy approaches in HR, we'd have, you know, like an annual, uh, set of goals, right. You know, smart goals or however you want to frame them. And, uh, you know, a lot can happen in a year as 2020 taught us, like the volatility that can take place, the priorities, the business can shift, um, the people can move into different roles. You could have a new product line that gets, popped up mid-year and it's all hands on deck on that. So it's hard to map uh, your full year in January without having the full visibility into what, you know, August, November, uh, December are going to look like. And so OKRs, you know, framed around kind of more quarterly 
looks, I think, are an effective way of saying, okay, like this quarter, we're going to be focusing on this. And you're kind of checking in, you kind of see exactly where uh, you, you, you break down the main deliverable and then you break down tasks to get there. So you can see product, uh, you can see process uh, and progress. Um, so I think that is a, a pretty common uh, approach in tech that I think works pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And, and the second blind spot, and I'll, I'll call this blind spot because I felt that this was challenging for me, was when you move to decentralized is reporting, right? Mm -hmm. What are you seeing folks do to solve that issue? Or what, what are some companies uh, doing to, to, um, to redefine reporting? Because decentralized and reporting gets a little gray. Um, it can be, but it doesn't have to be, right? Like I think, uh, you know, you, obviously some companies uh, like Zappos experimented with Holacracy and different kinds of models. I don't think that those have worked uh, uh, even Zappos kind of moved away from it. Uh, eventually I think it's just, you know, having no manager, no structure, no title is a very weird place to operate uh, as an employee. Um, and so I think in more decentralized organizations, they tend to be a bit more flat. Um, some may even have more of kind of dotted line or hybrid type structure. So you have, you know, a line of business, but you might have other departments or, or leaders that you, you work cross-functionally with. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily completely changed how we think about reporting and structure. It's maybe flattened it a little bit. Um, but I think that, uh, but it hasn't reinvented it, you know, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting. You know, we use dotted line. So, so if you're a frontline leader, you have a finance issue, you don't go to the mid, the old school way was go to the mid-level manager that dealt and triaged all these issues. Now it's okay. Dotted line to finance, dotted line to HR, dotted yeah. line to, to sales. Um, and that, that, I think has certainly been um, been helpful in a, in a lot of respects. But, you know, oh, yeah, I know what I was going to say is also I think what you're referring to, too, is maybe those positions aren't gone, but the mindset, the approach is going from command and control manager to support and coach. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, the role of a manager, I think, in those environments is, is removing blockers and empowering. Right. It's like, how yeah. can I how can I create an environment where my employees can do their best work and have the most impact. Um, and so it's less about, let me check in and say, okay, have you, you know, completed this widget? Have you done this, you know, task? It's more of like, okay, uh, how are your projects? Is there anything in the way that I can, are there any roadblocks that I can help remove? Uh, right. Are you stuck in anywhere that I can maybe, uh, you know, support? So it's more of like the role of a manager empowering the employee rather than like, you know, owning for lack of a better word, their yes. work and like checking it out. Like, tell me what you did here. What do you do? Like, not, you know, micromanaging doesn't work in those uh, decentralization. Those are, those are in the intermediate conflict. You know, we talked about the, the mindset of the C-suite and those who aren't ready, but, but this also has happened to individuals within the organization. How do we, how do we get in front? How do you change the mindset of someone, whether they were a previous employer manager or they're coming into the organization, but but come from a more command and control environment, to moving to more of a coach, moving to more of a, hey, I'm going to connect you with someone in this organization to solve the problem or to our LMS or support you. H how do we make that shift? I've, I've had a hard time with that in the past. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is um, you need to be real clear about what the role of a manager is, you know, and, and that shift from a coach. So what are, what are the behaviors that you expect? What are the... Um, you know, mechanisms, check-ins, uh, those sorts of things that you expect from managers when they're expected more to be kind of coaches of their teams than somebody, you know, micromanaging their tasks 
uh, and their day to day. So I think that that that's an important piece um, that uh, that you you know it, it's one thing to say, hey, we we want you to be more coaches than you know than than micromanagers. That that statement without additional supporting resources of kind of what that means and how to get there, what that looks like, I, I think isn't that valuable. I think it's really important that especially if you're making that shift. You have to say these are the behaviors that we value. These are the these are the ways that we want you to be able to support and interact uh, with your teams, uh, and even in some cases, kind of contrast them from the old expectations. So this is the the role of a manager was X, Y, and Z. The role of a manager in this new kind of coach model is A, B, and C. And here's what's different. So you have to. I think a lot of companies that make that shift uh, when it doesn't go well. Some some of the challenges is that they don't necessarily um, provide enough context in what that shift is, especially if they have managers who've only worked in those environments where like, you're a manager. That means that you're, you know, you're responsible and you have to, you know, keep your employees to task and, you know, that, that kind of mindset. I think if you, if you make that shift, uh, you've got to really do, uh, be effective at kind of contextualizing what that means and what behaviors are now different and kind of what's expected. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That makes perfect sense. So, so that's great. Thanks for your insights on that. Super helpful uh, for me and, and, and I'm sure to the listeners. Um, let me go to, um, what, what do you see? What are the going to be the changes now to the future? Like, so we've kind of gone from old school to today, calling redefining, but where, what, what does the future look like? What do, you, what do you think are the major changes in the next 12, 24, 36 months that we'll see in, in this space? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing that we're going to see is this shift towards um, hybrid models driven by flexibility. Uh, and and what I mean by flexibility is, you know, we're we're going through this global phenomenon in COVID where you know so many people shifted to remote, and it wasn't even just remote. Like we talk about it as if it was remote work. Like this is as suboptimal as remote gets. Like you, your kids are home in many cases. Uh, you know, you may have elder care issues. You may have uh, mental health and anxiety struggles exacerbated by a global pandemic. I mean, this is not remote work. This is uh, a lot of people say it's, you know, working at home. It was like, it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't optimal uh, remote work. But as we begin to move through this and more employees uh, have had the ability sometimes for the first times in their career to work from home and see how they can build a lifestyle around that. Um, you know, there's a lot of employees who will never go back in an office again. Uh, they just won't. And so I think from an HR perspective, you know, we, we, we're, we're entering this new age of personalization where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we are, our past is largely rooted in playbooks and kind of set structures. You know, this is how we do benefits. This is how we do time off. This is our working day. And I think we're going to have to rethink all of that uh, as we mm-hmm. move forward. So I think it's going to be much more about flexibility and personalization uh, over the next three years. And, and when you say personalization, Lars, um, are you saying, you know, it's it's now moved from l- dealing with Lars Schmidt at work, and 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 now dealing with Lars as an individual? And hey, how how are things in your home life? Like g- crossing over to places where, you know, HR wouldn't go before, but now it feels like you need to worry about the individual, not just them at work. Yeah, I mean, I think it is so certainly it is part of that. I think as we talk about, you know, uh, empathy and compassion, and and uh, you know, in HR, we love to talk about kind of bringing your whole self to work. If we're if we're honoring those things, I think that we we do have to get to know employees in, in a different, less uh, stoic way. 
I think, than we had in the past. And, and again, where there's an appetite for that, not all employees want to kind of be that open and, and we have to honor that as well. Um, but I think when I talk about flexibility and personalization, it's more that, you know, the very constructs of work up until 2020 were largely held over from the industrial era, right? Uh, you know, work was Monday through Friday, work was nine to five, work was in an office. Uh, we've blown those things up and some of us will never go back. So I think it's less about, this is kind of get back to my point earlier around measuring uh, outputs uh, and, and results as opposed to like where and when and even how in some cases work gets done. That's the big shift. So some people, um, you know, they, they won't be able to work nine to five. You know, they, they have to work a little later because they got to bring their kids to school in the morning. Um, you know, some uh, won't be able to work in the city where your headquarters is based because they've, they've moved for lifestyle reasons. And if you want to keep them employed, you have to allow them to be, uh, you know, work remotely where they are. I think those ideas that in the past, it was, you know, everybody came in office, everybody worked Monday through Friday, everybody like that, I think is what we have to start moving away from. And the future of the field will be more about the companies that can be really flexible in terms of how they design work systems that work for all employees. And that definition is going to be different for all employees. I think those are the ones that are really going to have an advantage from a talent perspective. What's interesting, we had a, a previous guest that talked about this, this shift from career path to success path. And that, that it, I was like, wow, you, you know, that you nailed it because the old career path has changed. Now success path could be, you know, I want to, you know, our, our company has a global office in Sweden and my success is I'd love to live there or success is being a part of this project because it really interests me. And, and I think that's what you're saying is really looking at things from that perspective. Yeah. And I mean, I think the reality too is, you know, when you look at work now, it's not about career ladders, it's career lattices. You know, people, it's not just about vertical progression in a role. Uh, it, it's vertical, it's horizontal, it's jagged. Right. Uh, it's different. And, and every, you know, for some employees, like they, they, their driver is going to be vertical progression. For other employees, it's going to be work-life balance. Uh, and, and they right. want to make sure that they're present for their kids' baseball games and, and, and events and activities. And they want to travel to, you know, Europe once a month with their family or, or something. So like we, we have to, we have to honor that not everybody is going to have the same desires and wishes and same definitions of success. Uh, you know, and that is, that is, that is a shift I think from how we looked at things in the past where it was like, well, of course everybody wants to, uh, you know, become a manager. Everybody wants a VP title. Uh, you know, now that's not really the case. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so uh, look in, in closing, Lars, anything that we haven't talked about that you think would be uh, impactful to the listeners today? Yeah. I mean, I think just from an HR perspective and a, you know, HR people ops, however you want to frame it. I think one of the other, you know, core shifts that will be um, foundational for us as we kind of build this new path forward is really how we think about building inclusive companies and inclusive organizations and really prioritize uh, equity in our HR and people systems. I think, uh, again, kind of tying it back to 2020, the events of 2020 have, have showed us, and I think have, have opened people uh, in the HR space up more towards systemic inequity that's embedded in many of our organizations. And so as we're designing our future, um, it has to be kind of deeply rooted in equitable outcomes. Um, and that, again, is another shift that uh, I, I think in the past, uh, you know, we, we looked at it too narrowly through purely the lens of diversity rather than, you know, equity and inclusion. And I think that that shift in mindset 
um, will, will allow us to really start making strides in an area that uh, most companies have struggled with for decades. Yeah, well said, Lars. I would agree. Uh, so where can we find you? The people listening, uh, where, where's your podcast and, and uh, how do they order your books? And, and tell us where, where our listeners can find you. Yeah, so uh, you know, redefininghr.com is the hub for, uh, for all things. So podcast, book, uh, you know, courses, community, every, everything kind of that stems from that uh, is all centralized there. So that's the, uh, the best spot. Great. Lars, uh, really great to finally meet you. Thanks for your time and appreciate uh, all your insights. Very uh, valuable stuff. I was taking some notes today myself and have some great takeaways. So thank you from myself and, and everybody listening today. Yeah, I appreciate it, Ron. Thanks so much for having me on. I enjoyed the chat. For more information about Lars, please go to redefininghr.com. And for more information about Scaling Culture Podcast or our upcoming book or masterclass, Scaling Culture, go to ConnellyOwens.com. If you're enjoying the Scaling Culture podcast, please click the subscribe button and reshare the interview with your LinkedIn network. We'll be back next week with another incredible guest.